Okay, so I thought uh, for a, a few uh, weeks I want to talk about Shemitah, but what I want to emphasize uh, that I'm not going to get it, and I'll be happy to answer any question you want, but I'm not going to get into detail. I want you to understand some concepts of Shemitah. And in particular, what I'd like to explain, because it's a very interesting topic, is what is this business about Heter Mechira and why uh, are so many people against it and why are some people for it? So at least you understand uh, that. It's a very interesting issue because it's halakhically very interesting and it's also historically very interesting. So there's an interesting historical background to the Heter of Mechira. So first, the mitzvah of Shemitah we read uh, in last week's Torah reading, uh, Parshas Bahar, and uh, the Torah says that every seventh year in the land of Israel, the land must rest. In fact, Shemitah is called Shabbos, uh, just as uh, every person, every Jewish person, we work for six days and we rest on Shabbos. The land can be worked for six years and it must rest on Shabbos. It is set, I'm sorry, not on Shabbos, on Shemitah. Shemitah is the Shabbos of the land. Uh, they say the Panovich Rav, the great Rav of Panovich, would go around uh, kissing the trees on Shemitah and wishing them a good Shabbos. He wished the trees <laughs> a, a Shabbat Shalom uh, for Shemitah. Now, let me digress with something that's not relevant to Halacha, but I also want to explain why that's so. The Torah says you count Shemitah seven times. And that takes you to year 49 in a cycle. And after year 49, you keep something that's called Yovel. Yovel in English is the Jubilee year. Now, Yovel is Shemitah plus, because on Shemitah, you're not allowed to cultivate the land. On Yovel, you're also not allowed to cultivate the land. So that actually means when we kept Yovel, and I'll discuss why we don't keep Yovel, you actually had two years in a row where a farmer could not cultivate the land. Year 49, which is the seventh Shemitah in a cycle, and year 50, which is Yovel. But Yovel has two more laws that go beyond Shemitah. Number one, which is not so relevant for us, uh, anyone that is a slave goes free on Yovel. So Yovel is freedom for all slaves. That is the Pasuk Ukrasem Deror L'chol Yoshveha, you shall proclaim freedom to all the inhabitants. Uh, those of you uh, who are from Philadelphia or remember uh, the Liberty Bell know that that is the inscription on the Liberty Bell. Uh, well, in English it says, proclaim liberty throughout the land. The Hebrew is ukrasem Duror, Duror is freedom, L'chol Yoshveha, to all the inhabitants. So, the lib- that's why it's called the Liberty Bill, because it has the verse, proclaim liberty throughout the land, is from the Chumash. Did you ever hear this? This is really a bizarre story. I, I think they say it's not true, but it's such a neat story, I'll say it anyway. Uh, they say that when the United States uh, rebelled against uh, Great Britain, there was such anti-British sentiment. They hated the English so much that they didn't want English to be the national language of the 13 colonies. So the Continental Congress had to vote what would be the official language of what was then the United States, the 13 colonies. And uh, it was actually proposed that Hebrew be the official language uh, (laughs) of America. Yeah, not here, of America. Uh, And it got, legend has it, I think it's above the mice, but legend has it, it was defeated by one vote 
which means if there had been one vote the other way, Hebrew would have been the language. Did they know how to speak Hebrew? They did. Yeah. They, they absolutely did. In, in colonial times, uh, the three classical languages that an educated person, I mean, I mean, the average person may not have known it, but if you were an educated person, uh, you knew Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. What? These were the three classical languages that an educated person was supposed to know. Now, to give you an opposite story, when Israel, the state of Israel, had to decide what its official language was, not everybody wanted Hebrew to be the official language. <laughs> because the reason was, because Hebrew didn't have, in those days, a lot of technical or scientific terms. So they thought Hebrew was not suited for a modern language. So uh, German or English was one of the proposals. So it got defeated. But imagine this, we could have had a world where Hebrew would have been the language of the United States and English would be the language of Israel. So when all of you American uh, students come to Israel, you'd have to spend all your time learning, learning English. You know, because on the, uh, well, <laughs> on the other hand, I mean, listen, Torah, Torah works were always in Hebrew, so the Misa, it would have been a big benefit for you if to grow up speaking Hebrew and then uh, learning Chumash and Navi and Mishnah. That would be a tremendous thing. Uh, but the spoken language in the street might have been English. Yeah, that's a, I have a feeling it's a bit of a, an exaggeration. This is a story that people like to, people like to tell. But be it as it may, Yovel has everything Shemitah has, can't work the land, plus the slaves go free, plus, and this is the biggie really, all land that was sold goes back to the original owners. Not the one, if I bought a field from you, it doesn't go back to you, it goes back to, you know, the original owner from the time of Yahushua bin Nun, of course he's not alive, but the heir of that original owner, Yovel. Don't slaves go free also during Shemitah? Is that wrong? No, that, that, no, that's a mistake. I'll, let, me, let me explain the mistake. The, the Torah says a slave works for six years and goes free the seventh year. But that doesn't mean Shemitah. That's six years of work. Meaning, let's say I buy a slave the fifth year of the Shemitah cycle. He doesn't go free in Shemitah. He has to work six years. He goes free in the seventh year, whichever year that is. So Shemitah itself does not free a slave. It is six years of work that frees a slave. But if Yovel comes first, then I, he goes free. Meaning if he is sold two years before Yovel, then when Yovel comes, he goes free, even though he did not work six years. But if he is sold two years before Shemitah, so he works two years, he works on Shemitah, then he has to work another three years, and then he will go free. Yeah, that's a common mistake people make. Is people think that if the slave goes free on Shemitah, he does not. Is there a difference between Evid, Tani, and Evid? Yes, yes. Um, all of these rules about slaves going free is only an Evid Ivri. Oh. A Jewish slave goes free after six years or on Yovel. Inevit Kanani never goes free unless the master frees him. I can free my Evid Kanani by giving him a star, by giving him a document that says you're free. And then he's free. Although I'm not allowed to do that, but, but if I did it, he would be free. You're not supposed to free an Evid Kanani yeah. because the Torah wants the Evid Kanani to remain in a Jewish environment. Uh, so you're not supposed to free your non-Jewish slave. Yeah. 
But if I did, uh, if I gave him a star, like a star shikhrur, a document of freedom, he is free. Uh, but Yovel and uh, six years is only an Evid Ivri, not an Evid Kanani. Okay? Okay. All righty. So is, this is, yeah, I'm sorry. Is that, um, I mean, this is very off topic, but um, I, re- I remember learning, like, in colonial history, one of their excuses for, like, why they would want to colonize lands or, like, even take slaves is, like, the whole white man's burden idea. Like want to educate them, so that sort of seems to. I mean, well, you know, again, I hate to I hate to say it because you know it, it can be offensive to people today. Uh, but I, I do, I'm not endorsing that idea as applied right. to American slavery. But I think it's very very clear that the Torah envisioned the justification uh-huh. of having non-Jewish slaves is a way of educating them away from immorality and away from avodah zarah towards uh, serving, serving Hashem. Remember, a non-Jewish slave, this is an important point, a non-Jewish slave is kind of like partially Jewish in the sense that he has to keep Shabbos. If it's a man, he had to have a bris he had to go to the mikvah. Uh, he is chayav, actually, a man is chayav in the same commandments as a woman, meaning he doesn't put on tefillin, but all the mitzvahs of a woman, a non-Jewish slave has to keep. So, now when he's freed... He or she is free. They become a full-fledged convert. They become a giyoris, whether they like it or not, actually. So uh, they actually do become Jewish. In fact, the Gemara gives a story that Rabbi Eliezer owned a non-Jewish slave, and he went to Shul, and there were only eight people, and he was the ninth, and his slave was the tenth, but his slave couldn't count for a minion. So he freed his slave in order to make a minion. Now, that's a huge economic loss. I mean, a slave was uh, very, very valuable. Now, I do know that people do ask the question. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not going to give you a whole show on slavery, although it's an interesting topic. You know, what's going on here? I mean, the Torah is supposed to be moral. I mean, don't, don't we regard slavery as something evil? And uh, the Torah has all these laws about slaves. What's going on? So there are two approaches to it. Approach number one might be that the Torah did not consider slavery desirable. Slavery is a bad thing, but everybody was doing it. Everybody, every nation in the world was doing it. And if Hashem would have said, don't do it, that would have been too hard for people. So instead, Hashem took something that's imperfect, something that's not a good institution, and tried to make it as good as you could make it, that you can't mistreat a slave, you can't beat a slave, you can't abuse a slave. So in that way, it's not that slavery is, is a good thing, but it was made as good as it could possibly be because you have to take care of your slave, whether Jewish or non-Jewish. With respect to a Jewish slave, the Gemara actually says, he who buys a Jewish slave has bought a master. If you only have one pillow, you have to give it to the slave. But even a non-Jewish slave, that I don't have to treat better than me. I do have to treat him in a dignified kind and compassionate way. So one way of looking at it is, the Torah is not endorsing slavery, but the Torah is simply saying, if you're going to have it, let's do it in the best way possible. Uh, There's another way of looking at it, like you say, the white man's burden, frankly, and that is that the Canaanites in particular uh, were people who were idolatrous, they were pagans, they were immoral, they engaged in murder and rape and the like. And by bringing them into a Jewish environment and giving them some mitzvah, so it's kind of like a forced conversion a little bit. 
uh, you're civilizing them. You're, you're, you're giving them the potential uh, for Kedusha. So in that sense, you know, there would be some justification. So I, I know this may not satisfy uh, everybody, but uh, these are like two, two, two approaches to how the Torah envisioned uh, slavery. So according to the yeah. second approach, slavery is ideal because it hasn't been resolved? Well, I, I, I'm not going to say it's ideal for everybody. Not everybody's on the madrega that there'll be a good influence. But, but there is a justification because in many cases it, it is a facilitation of bringing people to Hashem uh, and becoming more religious and more spiritual than they otherwise would have been. And it weans them away from the brutality of, of paganism and the like. Will have to choose that for themselves, and if you're living in an environment like yeah, maybe be influenced by it, but ultimately it's it's much more favorable. Well, 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 keep in mind, we normally don't go around the world forcibly converting people. I don't go over to my next door non Jewish neighbor and say, Yeah, you know, convert to Judaism or I'll I'll kill you. Uh, You're correct. I mean, slavery is is kind of an unusual example. Of, uh, of a coercion where the Torah is working with pre-existing institutions that existed uh, in the ancient world and trying to pull something good out of it in that, in that way. Uh, but again, as I say, yeah, slavery is a hard one. There are things in the Torah that we don't always fully, fully uh, understand. Okay, uh, but so be it as it may, we have Shemitah and we have Yovil. Now, you'll notice well, at least if you're old enough, you'll notice, that although we do keep Shemitah every seven years, we haven't been keeping Yovel. We don't keep the Jubilee year. And it's been a very, very long time since we kept the Jubilee year. By the way, the Yovel year does not begin on Rosh Hashanah. It actually begins on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, of the Jubilee year, a shofar is blown... Besides the Rosh Hashanah shofar, the shofar is blown not after Yom Kippur like we do, you know. On Yom Kippur, the shofar is blown, and that is a sign for Yovel to begin. The slaves go free, the fields go back to their owners, etc. So it's interesting that although the numerical year, whatever year it is, 5790, whatever year is Yovel, begins Rosh Hashanah, but the Yovel halachot, do not begin till Yom Kippur. Yom so Kippur is the beginning of the Yovel year. So it's less than a full year because it ends the next... That's correct. Days. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't go to the next Yom Kippur. It ends at the end. So it's, it's 10 days less than a full, uh, than a full, a full year. Um, so when did we stop... When, so we don't keep Yovel today. We do not keep Yovel today. Uh, when did we stop keeping Yovel? So we have actually have not been keeping Yovel for a really long time. Uh, we don't keep it today. We didn't even keep it in the 420 years of the second base on Mikdash. So we did not keep Yovel in the second base on Mikdash. We certainly did not keep it in the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. And we didn't even keep it in the last 100 years of the first temple. Why? We stopped keeping Yovel when the 10 tribes of Israel were exiled. Right? Do you know your, your history here? Uh, after Shlomo HaMelech died, and he was succeeded by his son Rechavam, so there was a revolution, a massive revolution, where ten tribes broke away 
from Malchus based of it, the Davidic line. And the ten tribes established a northern kingdom, which is called the northern kingdom of Yisrael. And the southern kingdom only had two tribes, Yehuda, Binyamin, but they also had Shevet Levi because Shevet Levi was around the, where the base of Mikdash was. So the ten tribes had their own line of kings, mainly bad ones, Achav, all sorts of bad guys. The Malchus based David, from which Mashiach will come, only ruled over those two tribes, plus Shevet Levi. Right? So the book of Malachim, when you learn the book of Malachim, it gets complicated because it's always zigzagging between uh, Malchus, what ha- what's happening in Yisrael, what's happening in Yehuda. You know, so I just want to change my, my, my recorder. I have to promise somebody I would record this. Well, Shlomo's son was Rechavam, but the first king of the northern kingdom was Yeravam ben Nevad. He was known as, right. a, as a big Russia. That was Yeravam, right? So you had Rechavam and Yeravam. Remember how it was. Um, the Gemara says you should always listen to the advice of older people who have more experience because uh, people went to Rechavam and said, you know, uh, taxes are too high, give us a tax break. So Rechavam speaks to the... Uh, older people, and they said, yeah, 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 if you, want people, if you want people to be loyal to you, you have to be kind to them, you have to be compassionate to them. The younger people said, these guys are complainers, gotta be tough. And he went with the younger people, and he said, if my father gave you taxes, I'm gonna double it and triple it, and there was a revolt, etc. Um, okay, now what happened was, these are two different, remember, these are two different kingdoms with two different uh, monarchies, and the Malchus Yisrael didn't even let people go to the base of Mikdash. They put guards like East Berlin and West Berlin. If you were from the Ten Tribes, you couldn't even visit the base of Mikdash. They put guards to stop you from doing it. Mm-hmm. They, they put up Eglezov, they put up their, old golden, their own golden calves that were worshipped. Right? This is in the book of Malachim. Now, the ten, tribes, the ten tribes had the base of Mikdash? No, no, no. The, the, the base of Mikdash is where the two tribes are, because right. the two tribes, right? So the ten tribes had no base of Mikdash, but they didn't want people to go to visit the base of Mikdash. So they erected their own temples to their golden calves of Odizara. And people were nichol of Odizara. Now, the ten tribes were exiled by Sancheriv, the king of Assyria. And this was more than a hundred years before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And these are what we call the Lost Ten Tribes. According to many, many views, they still have not been totally reunited with the Jewish people. Now, over the years, there have been many, many theories. Some have sources in, in our forum, some don't have any sources. Some people believe the American Indians were descendants of the Ten Tribes. Some say the Vikings. Some say the Pashtuns of Afghanistan, which is a 30 million uh, tribe which practice Islam, are from the Ten Tribes. We don't really know. 
But when the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, like a hundred years later, there was only a small fragment of the Jewish people that was even left. The tribes of Yehuda, Binyamin, and Levim. That means virtually every Jew today, you're either you know, Kohen, Levi, Bas Kohen, Bas Levi, or Yehuda or Binyamin. You're not Yisachar or Zavulin because the ten tribes were exiled. Okay? So here's the thing. Yovel has a halacha that in order for Yovel to be kept, most of the Jewish people have to be living in Eretz Yisrael. And from the time of the exile of the ten tribes, which is even before the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash, most of the Jewish people were no longer living in the land of Israel. And from that time on, we stopped keeping Yovel. So this is pretty amazing. It's not that we stopped keeping Yovel when the temple was destroyed. No, we stopped keeping Yovel all the way from the Golos of the Ten Tribes. Now, what's interesting is, if you think about this for a moment, because of the absence of Yovel, the computation of Shemitah is going to change. Because when you, when you had Yovel, this is how you counted Shemitah. You did 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, Shemitah. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, Shemitah. And you did that seven times. So that takes you to year 49. Then you have Yovel. Yovel counts for year zero. And then the year after Yovel is another 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. In other words, Yovel did not count towards the next Shemitah. Yovel is like a placeholder. But once you don't observe Yovel anymore, you just go with a continuous count of sevens, like we do now. We just count seven, 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 seven. We don't have any break for a Yovel because we don't keep Yovel. Which actually means, if you think about it, Shemitah today is observed earlier than it would have been in the time of the first Beis Hamikdash when you kept Yovel. Right? Every understand the dynamic because when you kept Yovel, Shemitah was pushed forward a year. Every fifty years, it was pushed pushed forward. Today we don't push it forward. Today we just go with an unbroken seven. So we count seven, you know, six Shemitah, six Shemitah, and we do that a thousand times, whatever it is. There's no break for the Yovel. When Mashiach comes and the Yidin are all brought back to Eretz Yisrael, then we're going to go back to Yovel again, and then we're going to use Yovel to push off the Shemitah year. Okay. Um, yeah. So since, was there ever a time since a hundred years before the first temple was destroyed that we kept not since then. Not since the... Uh, now, here's the thing that the Jerusalem Post sometimes says. They point out, well, we don't keep Yovel because the majority of the Jews aren't living in Eretz Israel. Well, demographically, statistics are indicating that we actually are approaching 51%. We're not there yet, but in the very near-term future, even if Chassashon Mashiach doesn't come, we will have more than 50% of the Jews in the world living in Eretz Yisrael. Hmm. So does that mean we're going to get Yovel back 
once we hit demographically 51%, actually 50% plus one person. So the answer, you know, and that would be very, very complicated. How would you sort out? I mean, how does a person show that I'm a, right? I, I, I claim the Tel Aviv beach strip because I'm from Yisachar or whatever. It's like, how, by the way, that's a good, I, I tell people, if you're looking for, um, you know, when Mashiach comes, you're going to have to have a job. The Rambam says, even after Mashiach comes, you have to have a job, right? So what type of job should I have? So I suggest become a title attorney because a title attorney is someone who investigates ownership of real estate. Because when Yovel comes, people are going to have to establish their claims going all the way back to Yoshua Benun 3,000 years ago. And that's going to be a really, really difficult process to do. Yeah, so that way you could, uh, you, you'd have a good Parnassah. But okay, uh, but be, be it as it may, uh, so the Jerusalem Post sometimes raises the specter, is Yovel going to come back? when we hit the 51%. So I just want to tell you that it will not come back. Uh, and the reason it will not come back is the following. First of all, when you say, let's just, you make a number like 51% of the Jews will live in Eretz Israel. Well, that means 51% of people who identify themselves as Jews. There are huge numbers of people who don't even know they're Jewish. So that's, you know, you don't have a majority of Jews. Second of all, the lost 10 tribes are still lost. So even if it's a majority of Jews, what, but that's not a majority of Am Yisrael, there's the 10 tribes. Now, third of all, and this is maybe the most important of all, even if you had a majority of Jews, there's another condition. A majority of Jews must be living here in their tribal divisions, meaning you must be living in your ancestral land and that, you know, you don't know. You don't know what that is, so that's not going to happen. Okay, so the good news or bad news is that until Mashiach comes, we will not have the criterion of most people living here in a proper way, so we're not going to have Yovel, right? So Yovel will not happen until Mashiach comes, okay? So this is Shemitah, and this is Yovel. So Yovel we do not keep today. Shemitah we do keep today. Now... Second point about this, is Shemitah a Torah commandment or is Shemitah a rabbinic commandment? Now you may ask me, how can I possibly talk about it as a rabbinic commandment? The Torah very, very clearly commands us to observe the Shemitah year. That's very true. But here is the chap. Many Rishonim, many Poskim say that on a Torah level, Shemitah lapses whenever Yovel lapses. Because since the Torah writes Shemitah and Yovel together, whenever you lose Yovel, you also lose Shemitah. Meaning just as we don't observe Yovel, because most of the people are not in Eretz Yisrael, that would equally apply to Shemitah. And that which we keep Shemitah is a rabbinic enactment that we should remember this mitzvah. That's most opinions. Other opinions do say that Shemitah and Yovel are independent, and even if Yovel lapses, Shemitah still is the arisis. So that's a very big machlokas, which on one level doesn't make a practical difference so much, because even if it's Rabbanan, 
you have to keep it, but you will actually see that it will make a difference. Whether we look at the Shemitah Bisman Hazah, meaning from the time of the exile of the ten tribes, do we look at it as rabbinic or we look at it as Doraisa? So just keep that in mind. And analytically, that depends on whether Shemitah is connected to Yovel or Shemitah does not depend on the, on the Yovel. Okay. Um, and you'll see, by the way, this will be very, very pivotal in analyzing the Heter Mechira. That's why I'm bringing this up. Okay, issue number two. First of all, I'm sorry, number three. What is the translation of Shemitah, literally? Shemitah means release, let go. Right, Shemitah, if I drop a pen, it's like lishmot, minayad, let it drop from the hand. So Shemitah is about releasing, right? You own land, you want to cultivate it, you want to farm it. Hashem says, let go to acknowledge that Hashem is the master of the land and you put your bitachon in him that he will take care of you and you don't have the attitude of kochi v'yotzim yadi that it is my, my power and my strength that gives me all of this ability. Now, if Shemitah means letting go, there are actually two types of letting goes that are involved. There is what is called Shemitas Karka, letting go of the land. And then there is something called Shemitas Kisafim, letting go of money. Now this is a part of Shemitah a lot of people don't realize. Shemitah, letting go of the land, basically means that during the year of Shemitah, I am not supposed to plow, I am not supposed to plant, I am not supposed to fertilize. I am not supposed to cultivate the land. We'll talk about how do you eat. We'll talk about that. That's a major question. But basically, I refrain from agricultural labors. That's Shemitah of the land. Shemitah of of money is a different thing. If I lend you money, this is again, maybe it's less known halacha, I lend you money and you don't pay me back, Shemitah is like a bankruptcy. It cancels all outstanding debt that one Jew owes to another Jew. That actually means if I lend you $10,000 and you don't pay me by the Shemitah year, it is usher for me to try to collect that money for you. It's usher for me to even ask you to pay. Now, it is a mitzvah for you to offer to pay me. But even if you offer to pay me, I'm supposed to say, you don't have to. And then you're supposed to say, but I want to pay you anyway. But if you don't say, you want to pay me anyway. Yeah. I, I may be coughing. Ah, you, know, you, didn't, you didn't say the next. <laughs> I, I am not allowed to ask you for the money. What about during? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, okay. So now I'm going to okay, okay. Now, there are two differences between Shemitah of land and Shemitah of money, even though they're both Shemitahs. Difference one, Shemitah of land is only Eretz Yisrael. Outside of Eretz Yisrael, there are no restrictions. Right? On a Shemitah year, I can work my vineyard in New York, I can do whatever I want. Shemitah's Kesef 
even applies outside of Eretz Israel. So, if I lent you money in Crown Heights, and we both live in Crown Heights, or Brooklyn, or, or, or Manhattan, or, or Baltimore, Shemitah cancels the loan. So that's difference number one. Chutz Laaretz versus Eretz Israel. Difference number two, and this is what you just said, the Shemitah of land laws begin at the beginning of Shemitah. Rosh Hashanah of 57, 82. Loans, however, are only canceled at the end of Shemitah, which means if I lent you $10,000, let's say two years ago, I am still permitted now, middle of Shemitah, to try to collect my debt because Shemitah does not cancel indebtedness till the end of the year, which means if I did not collect before Rosh Hashanah of Tuf Shin Pei Gimel 5783, I cannot collect it anymore, unless, unless you voluntarily give it to me. I can, I, can, I can accept it, unlike interest, which I cannot accept even if you offer it. If you want to offer to pay me, I can take it, but I cannot ask for the money, and I certainly cannot go to court or based in to get that money. Okay, so this is Shemitah's Karka, and this is Shemitah's Kesofim. Now, Shemitah's Kesofim has a very important qualification, which is based on a takana, an enactment that was made by the great Hillel. Right, everyone knows Hillel. He's called Hillel Azakin, Hillel the Elder. He was the one who always argued with Shammai. Hillel was known for his uh, not only greatness in Torah, but his kindness, his patience. He was the one who taught the guy who's standing on one foot, uh, the whole Torah. What is hateful to you, do not do to another person. Right? This is the great uh, Hillel. So Hillel made an enactment, with which is a very funny word. It's called prusbul. And prusbul is a way, I'll discuss uh, what to do, because even today you have to do a prisbal. If you're owed money, you have to do a prisbal. Otherwise, you won't be able to collect your debt. Uh, is a way to keep indebtedness alive, to prevent Shemitah. Hillel gave lenders a way to prevent Shemitah from canceling the debt. Now, before we even explain what prisbal is, you might ask a question. Hey, I thought Hillel is the nice, is the nice guy. Why is Hillel doing a favor to the banks? Why is Hillel doing a favor to lenders? The answer is he's not really doing a favor to lenders. He's doing a favor to poor people. Because what happened was poor people were unable to get loans close to the Shemitah year. Because the lenders basically said, why should I lend you money? If you hold off paying me for a few months, the loan is going to get erased. So what happened was people were starving because they could not borrow money because people with money were unwilling to lend them that money. So Hillel gave lenders a way to keep the loan alive. So yeah, he is benefiting the lender, but you understand, by giving the lender a way to keep the loan alive, poor people were able to get credit that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So the word prusbal 
which may be Persian, I mean, it's, it's certainly it's not Hebrew and it's not even Aramaic, means a law for the benefit of rich and poor. It helps the rich because they'll get their money back. It helps the poor because they'll be able to borrow. So what is a prisbra? This is why Hillel made it. So a prisbra means, let's imagine, I am owed money. I've lent money. Maybe I lent money to one person. Maybe I lent money to 100 people. I stand before a basin. A basin just means three rabbis. They don't even have to be rabbis, but three uh, learned people. And I declare to them, I am assigning, transferring my debts, my loans, to the basin that it now belongs to you. Now the halacha is Shemitah does not cancel money owed to a basin. So by transferring my loans to a basin, these three people, Shemitah will not cancel it. Of course, the problem is, but if they, but they own it, not me. So how do I get my money? And then they, the basin, authorize me to collect the money as their agent and keep it. So basically, I stand in front of three rabbis or three learned people, and I declare, I in English or Hebrew, there, there is a Hebrew nusach, I hereby transfer to you, the basin, all of the money that is owed to me and request that you give me permission to collect it. The Basin gives that permission and they give him a document, they give me back a document signed by them saying that this declaration was made. This is called a prusbo. Any person that is owed money or any person that thinks they might be owed money, if you don't know, must make a prisbal no later than Erev Rosh Hashanah coming up before the end of Shemitah. You don't need the permission or the consent of the borrower. Because if I needed the borrower's consent, he'll just say no. <laughs> right? So I don't need to even tell him. But I need to have the prisbal because if the borrower doesn't want to pay me, the prisbal will give me the ability to collect. Now, let me point out, actually here Chabad has an interesting psaac from the Alter Rebbe. Um, most opinions say you make the prusbo before the end of Shemitah, but the Alter Rebbe had a chumrah that you should also make a prusbo, it's already too late now, uh, before Shemitah, meaning uh, you actually make two prusbos. You make a prusbo before to, uh, this year, and you make a prusbo before next year. So according to that, well, well, the reason is because uh, some opinions say that um, once the year of Shemitah enters, even though the cancellation will not be in effect until the end, it's already a canceled debt subject to the waiting of time. So you can't make a principal once the debt is canceled. Okay. So I think uh, Chabad people make two principles. Oh, you may ask, well, why make two prismals? Why just So just make one in the beginning. The, the answer is, you can do a prismal now, by the way. The, the problem is, prismal only covers loans that already were made before the prismal. In other words, prismal will protect the money I already lent. But if I make a prismal today and I lend you money tomorrow, 
it's not covered by the prisbal. So that's why you make a prisbal at the end to cover any loan you made, even during, during Shemitah. Okay, so this is prisbal, and this is a takana of Hillel Hazakeng in order to enable poor people to borrow money shortly before Shemitah or during Shemitah. Yeah. Why is it that if a person owes money to based and they have to pay it back, does Shemitah not cancel that out? Like why is- yeah, so, so the Gemara has, I mean, the Gemara itself has different drushos interpreting biblical verses. That uh, it's only, uh, the Torah says, money that is owed to your brother, you know, your fellow Jew, you don't have to pay, but the based in is a representative of Hashem. And therefore, it's like money you owe to Hashem. That would mean, a, a modern example would be, if you owe traffic tickets to a based in, let's say, when you had a Jewish state, a Jewish court, so you'd have to pay your traffic tickets even after Shemitah. You know, money, that, a fine owed to a based in, and the like. Okay, so again, so what we've done is we've subdivided Shemitah into two categories. There is the Shemitah of land, Shemitah's karka, and there is the Shemitah of kasafim, of money and indebtedness, uh, which can be circumvented by prusbol, etc. And prusbol is commonly done. Again, uh, anyone that's owed money, or even if you don't know, should make a prusbol. So I'm sure as we get closer to uh, Rosh Hashanah, your, your teachers, Rebbein, will, will tell you about prusbol. Although I don't know if how, I don't know how many of you lend money, but you never know. If you, you know, even if you lend somebody a little thing, if if you lend somebody ten shekel, uh, you can't ask for it back once shemitah is over, unless uh, there was a prisbal. So you, you may, know, yeah. If you lend during shemitah, same thing. During shemitah, same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, well, well, you, if you lend during shemitah and shemitah uh, finishes, then it's canceled. Right. But during during shemitah, you can collect. Yeah, yeah. During shemitah, you can ask for it. Yeah. Because Shemitah does not cancel till the end of Shemitah. Okay. So now, though, let's go back to Shemitah's Karka, which is the uh, main issue in, in Eretz Yisrael. That is, Shemitah's Karka has a number of distinct components that you need to know about. I, I just want to uh, list them, because there, there are a number of distinct rules that people aren't always aware of. Rule number one is agricultural work that there are restrictions on agricultural labors. This would refer to plowing, this refers to planting, uh, this refers to fertilizing. And this is complicated, but unless you're a gardener, uh, most of us don't need to know all of this. I will just say that you need to know one important rule about agricultural labor. And that is, there is a difference between improving and preventing destruction, meaning you are allowed to do labor to prevent the death of a tree or the death of the fruit. So you can water plants in or, enough that they shouldn't die. So you don't water them to increase their growth, but you water them on a maintenance level so they shouldn't die. And that's gonna be a very complicated halachic question what is called maintenance gardening and what is called producing, you know, improvements in gardening. Okay, so that's what you need to know about agricultural work just as a general concept. I have one. Yeah, yeah. So if I wanted to buy a potted plant and just water it, not change it, I'd be allowed to do that? 
So that's actually a, a lot more complicated uh, than you would think, uh, because technically Shemitah only applies to the ground and not to a pot. But on the other hand, if the pot is resting outside, uh, it may be connected uh, to the ground in that way. So uh, the only heter you have, the only unconditional heter you have to do whatever you want with the potted plant is number one, keep it indoors. Under a roof, that means. Merpeset is good too, but it has to be under a roof. And number two, uh, put a metal or plastic plate under the earthenware pot so it's not connected to soil or something like that. Okay, and if, you meet, if, those, if those two conditions are met, you can do whatever you want. If those conditions are not met, you can only water it sufficiently so it shouldn't die, but you can't really give it extra water and, and the like. Okay, so that's the agricultural aspect. Now, oh so no, you can buy the plant. Yeah, buying is okay, but but the issue is what can you do with it once you've bought it? Okay. Ah, so that's a very good question. That is a very good question. Uh, that's a big machlokas. There are many opinions that say you are not allowed to get any benefit from something that was produced in violation of shemitah laws. So you should not buy anything that was planted during during Shemitah. That's very true. On the other hand, if it was planted by a non-Jew, it might be permitted. Because non-Jew, see, the non-Jew doesn't have to keep Shemitah. Right? So there was no Avera that was done in that case. Now, rule number two is the status of what grows during Shemitah. And that is you're not allowed to plant, that's for sure. But what about things that grow by themselves? You have an apple tree. Apples grow on the tree. You didn't plant the apple tree. Apples grow on the tree. So this is another important halacha. Every produce that grows during Shemitah is hefker. It is ownerless. It is available to every person to take. So let's imagine I have an apple tree that's growing in my backyard. I am allowed to take apples too. I'm no worse than anyone else. I can take small quantities of apples for me and my family on a daily basis. I can't harvest the whole tree. But I can take, if, I, if we want five apples for today, I can take five apples. But I have to let everybody else take apples as well. Each one taking only for day to day, not, not, not uh, quantities. And that means it is usher de orisa to prevent somebody from picking your fruit. It's not your fruit. If you lock your gate, etc., usher de or put uh, your, your watchdog, your guard dog there. It's usher. Now, if you are concerned for security, you're concerned for terrorists or crime or wild animals, so you are allowed to lock your gate, but then you have to put a sign that says, all fruit is hefker, and you have the right to come take it. Please call this number. <laughs> I'll let you in. Yeah, yeah. But you have to put a sign saying, it's hefker, and please call me and I'll let you in, something like that. Okay? So that's the second aspect. Shemitah produce is hefker. You're not stealing if you take it. You are free to take it. Now, that, that has a car, another corollary. 
interestingly enough, that you don't have to take truma and miser from Shemitah fruit. Because the halacha is, right, the, the different separations, I don't know, most of us never have to do this because we buy it under Ashkacha. But normally, if you were to, let's imagine you go blackberry picking, or whatever it is, blueberry, uh, in, the, in, in a non-Shemitah year. You do know, I hope, that in Eretz Yisrael, you would have to take off truma and maser from it. You know, if you don't know how to do that, it might be a little, uns- you know, a little unclear, a little unfamiliar. So when you uh, pick fruit, you go to an orchard and you pick fruit with permission, you've got to separate various tides. On Shemitah, you don't. Because the rule is, anything that's hefker, anything that's ownerless, does not have a mitzvah of truma and miser attached to it. And therefore, the produce of Shemitah is exempt from truma and maser. Okay, so I've mentioned three aspects so far. Uh, number one, the agricultural restrictions on work. Number two, the idea that everybody can have access to the Shemitah produce. Number three, the exemption for truma and maser because it's hefker, hefker is exempt from truma and maser. Why is it exempt? Say again? Why is it exempt? Well, again, these are all, you know, these are really drushos. These are interpretations of, of psukim. That uh, the halacha is that only when uh, somebody owns produce is it obligated in truma and maser. When something is ownerless, it is not obligated in truma and maser, even if somebody then acquires then acquires ownership. Okay, so far so good. Now I'm going to say a fourth rule, which is not going to make sense when you hear it, but I'm going to say it and then you'll see how it's going to make sense eventually. This fourth rule is called sapichen. This is a bit of an unfamiliar word. Sapichen, samach, Pei, Yud, Ches, Yud, Nun. It's not Hebrew, it's a Mishnaic Arameaism. Sapichen means wild growths, things that grow by themselves. And this refers not to fruit, this refers to vegetables and grain. In other words, things that are planted annually, right? The primary difference halachically between what is a fruit and, and uh, what is not a fruit is whether it's an annual thing, something that has to be planted every year is a vegetable or grain. Something that doesn't have to be planted every year is a fruit, like an apple tree. You don't plant an apple tree every year. And that is, sapiche means vegetables or grains that you did not plant during Shemitah, but just grew from themselves, from seeds that were left over in the ground from last year. Chazal made a gezerah, a rabbinic law, that you're not allowed to eat them at all. They are prohibited. They are treif. Meaning the only Shemitah produce you can eat, again, this is not going to make sense when you first hear it, the only Shemitah produce you can eat are fruits, you cannot eat Shemitah produce of vegetables and grains. 
Right, so the obvious question is, so how on earth do you have bread or whatever? We'll get to it. And the reason the Rabbanan made this takana was for the following reason. If you could eat the grains or vegetables that grew by themselves, you might deliberately plant that stuff and then claim later, oh, it just grew by itself. Right? Who knows? So in order not to allow people to deceive the, hal- deceive the system by breaking the halacha, Chazal said, hey, even if it grew by itself, we're not going to let you eat it. So think about the repercussions for a moment. That actually means vegetables and grains that grew during Shemitah are forbidden to be eaten. So you won't find Kiddushashvi's vegetables and grains? That would be the Pashtas. But, but here's what the Chazanish said. The Chazanish, you know, the Chazanish, the Chazanish uh, you know, he died, he was Rechaim Kinevsky's uncle. He died in 1955. And he came to Eretz Yisrael in the 1930s. And he really was kind of the pioneer in, 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 in how Jewish religious farmers would observe Shemitah. And uh, he has many, 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 many writings on Shemitah. And he makes the interesting points that not everybody agrees, but we follow this, that this extreme gezeira of sapichim is only if none of the plant or vegetable or grain grew before Shemitah, meaning it totally sprouted and grew during Shemitah. If even a little bit was visible above the ground, it will have kedushat shviyit, but it will not be sapichim. So... According to the Chazanish, it is possible to have vegetables and grains that do not have the issue of sapichim if there was some noticeable growth above ground before Shemitah. Okay, so again, just to keep on going over the list here, so we've mentioned, number one, agricultural restrictions. Number two, the hefker, the accessibility of the fruits to everybody. Number three, the exemption of truma and maser from those fruits. Number four, the rabbinic enactment on grains and vegetables that is called sapichen. Number five, you already brought out the phrase, the Laws of Kedushas Shavias. Now, Kedushas Shavias, and this is something that is very relevant to a consumer, we have to know this, means that even the produce of Shemitah I'm allowed to eat, like fruits, have to be eaten, they are considered holy, and they have to be eaten in a holy manner. What this means primarily for the consumer is if it is Shemitah produce, now a lot lot of stuff you buy is not Shemitah produce, but assuming it is Shemitah produce, uh, you're not allowed to waste it. So that's why you got to be careful. Even the peels have to be not put in regular garbage, but they're put in a special receptacle only for Shemitah and only when it rots and spoils, you can put it in the regular garbage. 
or you can double wrap it. You can double wrap it. You can't, you know, the point is you can't mix it with right. regular garbage. Yeah, double wrap it is good. Uh, you have to eat it in the normal way, meaning to say uh, you can juice produce that's normally juiced, but if you take, I mean, let's imagine you had some crazy liking uh, for a fr- to make juice of a fruit that nobody makes a juice of. Kiwi juice. Kiwi? Oh, people do. No, people, people do. The truth is, almost, every, the truth is almost everything is uh, people juice today, but whatever. If, um, Broccoli juice. Yeah, well, broccoli is a pichim. That's another problem. Okay, okay. but something like that. Uh, you, you have to eat it in the normal way it's consumed. Now, the truth is, today, everything is normal. People ask me, can you mash bananas for banana cake? I think you can, because that's not an unusual thing today. Uh, but on the other hand, if you read the halachos of like 100 years ago, they would actually say no, because th- those were not the usual things people did. So what's usual actually does change with time. That things are uh, juicing is, an, is another good example. There were all sorts of juices. Nobody had, uh, you know, like you know, fifty years ago, uh, all you had was orange juice. Right now, you have this juice and that juice and that juice. You know, blueberry, uh, blueberry juice, date date juice. They, 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 they never made date juice, but now it's very it's very delicious. Date juice is really good, really nice and sweet. But that's a relatively new thing. They, they historically did not make juice from dates or whatever it is. So, again, I don't want to go over the pratim because you can talk to your teachers about the exact details about this, but I want you to understand the general idea. Kedushat it means not wasting. It means not throwing into garbage unless double-wrapped. It means not preparing in an unusual way. And then there's some other things to be aware of. Not taking outside of Israel. This is very, very interesting. If you're planning, if you're planning a visit, let's say you were planning a visit to America, and you simply want to take along a Shemitah apple. Now, a lot of your apples are not going to be Shemitah, but assuming it's a Shemitah apple, he says, you're not allowed to do that. You, unless you eat it uh, in the airport, because you're not allowed to take Shemitah produce outside of the land of Israel. You also couldn't take it. That's correct. A lot uh, would, yeah, that's correct. You could not take it to a lot. That's right. That's right. Now, yeah. Question about Does the Torah allow, like just strictly from the Torah, do they allow, does it allow? Yes, Sapicham is an issue of on Adar, right? So whatever grows by itself is perfectly fine. Although it would have the Kedushat Shaviyat, but, but you'd be allowed to eat it. Okay. Now I want to continue Kedushat Shaviyat's laws, right? So uh, can't, can't take it out of Israel. Number, uh, next one. Can't give it to a non-Jew. Now, this could be very, very funny. Let's imagine, you know, many people, particularly the elderly, they have AIDS at home. Uh, they call them, I mean, the Hebrew, I mean, the Hebrew word is Filipino simply because, I mean, I mean a Filipino is a Filipino, but, but so many of the Filipino, yeah, but it's actually where the modern Hebrew word for a home attendant is Filipino. <laughs> because so many Filipinos, because they're so excellent, they're extremely good. I mean, they're so patient and kind. And it's really like the ideal, like perfect person uh, for the, this type of job. Uh, so a person says, I have a Filipino, you know, even if the person is from uh, America, whatever it is, uh, and the like. Uh, so you want to give her some fruit. If it's Shemitah fruit, you cannot do it. You have to like find some other fruit. Again, 
most of the fruit we eat is in fact not Shemitah fruit. I'll talk about that. But, but if it's Shemitah fruit, this is Nichlal and Kedushat Shviyat. Again, uh, don't waste. Uh, you must dispose not by mixing in garbage with double wrapping. Uh, you must prepare it in the way it's normally prepared. You do not take outside of Eretz Yisrael. You do not give to a guy. Now here's yet another one that's going to be very strange. Peros with the holiness of Shemitah are not allowed to be sold. What that actually means is when you go to a store and you buy a Shemitah fruit, technically, if it's halachically set up in a proper way, you are just paying for the labor and the transportation. You are not paying for the fruit. In a way, that's a corollary of the Hefker idea that nobody owns Shemitah produce. And therefore, uh, you cannot do business with it. You cannot, with a lulav and an esra, okay, I'll save that for now, I don't want to, but, but technically, when you buy a shemitah esra, you're getting the esra for free and you're paying all that money for the, for the lulav. See, lulav, the only thing that have to do shat shviyat are edible things. So lulav, hadassam, and arabos don't have any shemitah sanctity, so they could be charged for it. You, I, could, I could charge you for that, now, normally, that doesn't cost anything. I mean, when you buy a lulav in an esra, you're really paying for the esra, for the lulav. I'm sorry, you're paying for the esra. But next year, when you're going to buy a shemitah one, you're paying for the lulav and getting the esra for free because they're not allowed to charge you for the esra. But isn't that just like a technicality? Uh, yeah, well... You say, oh, well, you're paying for this, but like, how would anyone... You're correct. It is a technicality. This is an area where we work with a lot of, a lot of technicalities. Okay, all of these laws are called Kedushat or Kedushas Shaviyas. Okay? The sanctity of Shaviyas. So again, I'm, let me keep on going over the list. These are concepts. I'm not here so much to give you every specific in and out. Uh, we have the agricultural restrictions. We have the requirement to give everybody access to Shemitah fruit. Hefker, we have the exemption from Truma and Maser. We have the rules of Kedushas Shaviyit, such as not wasting, double wrapping, not preparing in an unusual manner, not taking outside of Israel, and not selling, right? No, no, no commercial activity. All of that is Kedushas Shaviyit. And now the fifth concept I want to mention is a concept called B-Or. Bior is Bez Yud Ayin Vav Resh. Bior means eradication. And I hope this word sounds a little familiar to you because we use the phrase Bior Chametz. Right? We had Pesach. Right? So uh, the night before uh, the Seder, we do Bedika, we search for the Chametz. And then the morning, Erev Pesach, we do Bior Chametz. Now, Bior Chametz, for Chametz, means physically destroying the Chametz by burning it or the like, Bior Chametz. So Bior does mean destruction of Chametz. And there is a concept by Shemitah as well called Bior, removal of, but, but you'll see in a moment, Bior of Shemitah is not the same as Bior of Chametz. And this is a law of Shemitah, interestingly enough, that does not really apply in Shemitah. It applies the year after Shemitah. 
And here is the principle. It's going to be a little complicated. Shemitah fruit, you're allowed to eat. It's even a mitzvah to eat. As long as you keep the laws of Kedushas Shavias. Okay, that's basic. I can eat the apples, the pears, the grapes, the quinces, the bananas. Bananas are also not sapichim because you don't have to plant the banana tree annually, etc. However, and th- these are based on drushos. These are based on psukim. You're only allowed to eat shemitah produce as long as there's enough produce in the fields that the animals could still eat. Meaning, I can eat Shemitah apples if there are still Shemitah apples on the trees or on the, on the ground that the animals could eat. It doesn't have to be my particular apple tree, but generally in the area. But at the point of time at which there's no longer any produce left for the animals. You're no longer allowed to keep this in your house. You must take it outside and make it hefker and give other people and other animals access to it. So bior does not mean eradication. Bior means removal from your house in an open area, once you've hit a date in which this produce is no longer available for the animals who would forage. Now, which means I can eat apples as long as there are still apples in the field for animals. Now, how on earth am I supposed to know when that date is. Now, usually it'll be sometime in the eighth year, meaning sometime in the eighth year, there'll be no apples of the seventh year in the field anymore. They've all been taken in. So I don't understand how Chazal could do this, but they actually compile calendars. You can get a calendar that gives you a date. I mean, how, how on earth do they compile these dates? I don't know. It'll tell you, English or Hebrew, uh, the last day that Shemitah apples are in the field will be February 2, 2023. They know that from 2,000 years ago? They know, no, no, well, no, Chazal didn't give you all the dates, but in recent years, they've looked at the past averages and wow. they've, right? So it's amazing. So if you have pears, if you have apples, if you have bananas, if you have grapes, uh, you can only eat that stuff until the date of Bior. Now, so here's what you have to do. So, on the day of Bior, yeah. you are obligated to take whatever Shemitah produce you have, mm-hmm. take it outside, and in front of three people that you're not related to, declare that it's Hefker, right? So anybody could take it, then count to ten. <laughs> And then you are permitted to take you are permitted to take it back in, and then life goes on normally. <laughs> so I understand. I, I, yes, I understand that this sounds a little evasive and the like, uh, but you do have to do it in a public place. You do have to have three people you're not related to. They do have the chance to take it, but if they don't, you can take it back. This is called bior. Now, if you miss the bior date, then 
the fruit becomes forbidden and it must be destroyed. So this is, a, this is fairly important that you have an obligation of Bior on the Bior date. If you fulfill your obligation, you can then reacquire it and then you're fine. If you don't fulfill your obligation, the Peirot become forbidden. This will be a date for every fruit and vegetable. Uh, well, you, you, you may ask me a question, is Bior relevant for grains and vegetables. So you might uh, tell me, well, beer is not relevant for grains and vegetables because grains and vegetables have the prohibition of sapichim, so you couldn't eat them to begin with, right? That's a good, very good point, and that's, that you are correct, or I'm correct, <laughs> but, but remember the chazanish. The chazanish said that any grain or vegetable that began to grow above the ground before Shemitah, even though all of it grew during Shemitah, is still, is not within the Gezeira of Sapichan, and therefore you would be allowed to eat it and therefore you'd have to have a Bior date for that as well. Now, let me tell you where this comes up. I'll tell you where this comes up. This will come up primarily in bottles of wine. There are bottles of wine already circulating that are made from Shemitah grapes. And the wine must be drunk with the holiness of Shemitah. That would mean, for example, you could not put out a Havdalah candle with the wine of Shemitah. It'll say it if it's Shemitah wine, etc. Okay? You cannot, uh, you cannot uh, perhaps it's not even clear you could cook with the wine unless it's commonly, that wine is commonly used for cooking. But you're only allowed to drink the wine before the Bior date of grapes, which is sometime in the eighth year. Actually, for, for grapes, we actually have a date of Chazal. Chazal actually told us it's Erev Pesach of the eighth year, meaning Shemitah grapes are, de- are in the field until Erev Pesach of next year. That means Erev Pesach of next year, any Shemitah wine you have, you must be mafkir in front of three and then you can take it in, okay? If you're not mafkir in front of three, that wine would have to be destroyed, okay? So it's a complication to be aware of. This is the din of Bior Peros Shemitah. Okay, so we, we, have a, we did quite a lot of concepts. Again, it's, it's a concept more than specific rules. I want you to understand the, this, the concepts, and if there's any question on the concept, I'll answer it. Um, again, we talked about, number one, agricultural restriction. Number two, the hefker of Shemitah produce. Number three, the exemption of Truma and Maser. Number four, the Kedushas Shavias. Oh, I'm sorry, number four was Sapichem. Number five, Kedushas Shavias. And number six, Bior. A lot of stuff to know about Shemitah, right? Quite, quite uh, complicated. So these are the concepts that you have to work with in the universe of Shemitah. So the next thing we'll talk about, maybe I'll, I'll save it for next time, is based on the interaction of all of these concepts, how do I eat on Shemitah? What, what do I eat? Where do I get my food? What are the different ways I can get food. What are the halakhic problems with the different ways? And the like. And essentially, 
you will notice in all, in all probability that probably most of you have not had to deal with Shemitah that much. Because the reason is, maybe it's not the best way, but the simplest way of keeping Shemitah is to avoid Shemitah. Now, that's not the greatest thing, theoretically, but the way, the way we avoid Shemitah is by either eating imported food, meaning food from Chutzla'aretz, which doesn't have the Shemitah laws, or food that at least was grown in the sixth year. So if you walk into any supermarket, at least a Haredi supermarket that has a Hashgacha, you will see bins of things that are marked Shishit, which means sixth year, or Chul. Chul is abbreviation, Chutz Laaretz. So Shishis and Chul, no problem at all. If it's not from Israel, no problem. And if it's from the sixth year, it was harvested before Shemitah, not a problem. No Sapicham issue, no Kedusha Shviyas issue, no beer issue. Right? So Shishis and Chul are the easiest way to live. Now, you are losing something with that, because remember, Ramban actually writes, to eat Shemitah produce bikedusha is actually a mitzvah. So if, and I admit, I, I also am lazy, I mean, I also use shishis and chul. Uh, I'm going to try to maybe buy some bananas, uh, Shemitah bananas, to fulfill the mitzvah. Uh, but shishis and chul have the advantage that you are not subject to any Shemitah law, so by definition, there's no Aveira you could be doing. The negative is, you also don't have a mitzvah. You don't have the mitzvah of eating with Tushat Shaviyat. Other things, like Hetra Mechira and Otzer Beistin, are going to be much more complicated, and we will talk about that. But let me just say, even something as simple as Yuvul Chul is not so simple. Because, what's, what, 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 because what part, what is Chul and what is not Chul? Chul is Chutz Laaretz. So if something comes from France or Germany or England or the United States, that's chol. But it gets a little complicated because there are parts of Eretz Israel, or well, I should say parts of the state of Israel, that might halachically be chutz la'aretz. You mentioned Eilat before as an example. But this is a major issue with uh, near Eilat, the southern part of the Negev, called the Arava. Now, the Arava actually produces quite a lot of fruits and vegetables because it's like an oasis. And there's a big, big, big machlokas if the produce of the Arava is Chol or Eretz Yisrael. Because if it's Eretz Yisrael, it would have Kedushas Shavias. And not only that, but there would be an Aveira to produce it. If it is Chutz Laaretz, it does not have Kedushah Shaviyas, and there is no Avera to produce it. So this is very, very interesting that the most Haredi Hashgachos, which are the most strict, are actually very makel on this question. They're very lenient. They, 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 see, let me explain the question. The question is a very technical question. The question is, what is the southern boundary of Eretz Yisrael? That's the problem. Those who consider the Arava to be Chutzlaaretz, consider the southern boundary of Eretz Yisrael to be north, north of that. 
those who consider the Arava to be Eretz Yisrael, they move the southern boundary south of that. And there's a huge, huge machlokas. Of, of all the four directions, it is the southern boundary that is the most uncertain. The western boundary of Israel is very simple, the Mediterranean coast. The eastern boundary is pretty simple, it's the Jordan River. The northern boundary, a little more complicated, but we kind of know where that is too. What, the, it's the Jordan River, but I thought um, there, when Yeshua conquered when there were tribes that lived outside. Yes, Reuven, God, and Chatzis, Shevet, Menashe, they lived east of the, of the Jordan River. Uh, and that land too may have some Kedusha, but we don't really get anything from there. That would be Jordan and Syria. I mean, you, you, you are correct that, that there, there might be some question about the holiness of that, but we, we simply don't uh, get anything from that. So uh, that part is not going to be a, a, a live question so much. Uh, but the southern boundary uh, is very, very uncertain because the Torah says the southern boundary goes to Nachal Mitzrayim, the Egyptian river, but does that mean all the way to the Nile, which is pretty far? Way, even past, way past Eilat, or does that mean Vadi al Arish, which is the Sinai Peninsula? So there are going to be areas in the Arava that some consider to be within Israel. I mean, it's within the state of Israel, but within Eretz Israel, and some say not within Eretz Israel. So it's interesting that the Eid Haredes, which is the strictest Hashgacha, is lenient on Arava produce, saying it's not, it doesn't have Shemitah laws. There are Datib Yumi, maybe because they're more nationalistic, or actually Machmer, they want to expand the boundaries. So this is an interesting uh, position. And they have different, this is a whole, you might call it a uh, halachic specialty of boundaries. Many people are not, I mean, I, I'm also not a big expert in it, exactly how you figure out the, the southern boundaries. And that's why you'll see, when you buy a package, you'll see, it'll tell you, is it from Arava or not, so you can talk to your own posek whether it should be treated, right? So Yavul Chol is a simple idea. Produce from Chutz Aretz is not subject to Shemitah. That's a simple rule. But you may have problems how to apply it when you're dealing with the Arava and, and the like, okay? And, yeah. and land that's owned by non-Jews. Okay. We'll talk about that. That's going to be a big, big question. That is a huge machlokas. And this is not Rav Cook. This goes back all the way to Rav Yosef Karo and the Mabit. The Mabit, Rav Yosef Karo was the Rav of Tzfat, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, um, in the 1500s. Mm-hmm. Time of the Arizal, Rav Ramak, all the great Mekubalim. And uh, Rav Yosef Karo was the Gadol Hador uh, in Halacha. He was also a Mekubal, by the way, as well. Uh, but the head of his basin was a great rabbi as well, called the Mabit, Moshe ben Yosef Trani. And uh, although they were working together, but they had an absolutely big, big machlok. According to Yosef Karo, the produce of uh, a non-Jewish owned land in Israel does not have the holiness of Shemitah. According to the Mabit, it does. And that had huge, huge machloksim that have repercussions to this very day. Uh, yeah, they were both they were both Sephardi, but uh, so it's not an Ashkenaz right. Sephardi thing, but it is a Yerushalayim B'nai Brak thing, and, and, and we'll talk about that. Okay, that'll be that's called Yavul Nachri, 
and we will talk about that next week. But, but the two options that are non-problematical are Yavol Chol and Yavol Shishis. And the only problem with Yavol Chol is, is mainly the Arava issue of the southern, southern boundary. Okay? Okay, so again, I hope this was not uh, too overwhelming, but at least uh, conceptually you should have a map of what the Shemitah issues are. Okay? See you next week. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.